Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us and set aside so that we can rest and rest in your word and what you've done for us. Uh, And we thank you, Lord, for this class that we can study the doctrines of redemption and understand more and more about you and what you've done for us and how you've revealed yourself to us. And really, Lord, that all these things are meant to show us how we find our purpose and meaning in this world and how we find our joy in, and hope in you. So we pray, Lord, that that be the, the goal and the end of what we're studying. In your Son's name we ask. Amen. So, we're going through the Apostles' Creed and last week we talked about what it means to believe and what it means to believe in specifically the Christian God and how he's revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this week we'll talk about how specifically he is the Father Almighty and the maker of heaven and earth. And so we'll look at three things like how he is our Father, how God is sovereign, and how God is a creator. And when you think about this, the, it's really important that the confession begins with God. It's really important that it doesn't begin looking necessarily at our own issues and our own problems. Um, because I think it's getting at this really important fact that without this transcendent purpose, without this transcendent God who's the purpose of it all, that humanity in many ways becomes aimless. Humanity and who we are loses everything that gives us joy and meaning in this life, that we become beasts, unable to even live with ourselves. When there's nothing holding this world together, when there's no reason to live, when there's nothing that's transcendent, that's outside of our, our capacity to, be, to even think or, or think about anything, without a transcendent God, humanity descends into chaos. And we be, and so easy for us to become joyless and hapless. And as C.S. Lewis says, you know, like, God is not disinterested in our human desires. You know, he created them. He just finds that when we lose the focus and we, when we lose this transcendent God as the author of all reality, we instantly focus those desires on petty things, on small things, and we are far too easily pleased. And I think this is important for us as we think about this, is that the reason we begin understanding and studying God is because most people are kind of just going through life, you know, really filled with boredom, um, filled with a hatred of even themselves. And most people on the street can't stand their own lives. They can't stand their own bodies. They can't stand so much of the life that they're going through. And even we can become caught up in that, completely addicted to trying to just numb our pain and numb our lives. Um, I really think that this, the boredom that captivates our generation and the generations b- below us is really rooted in this lack of joy and awe 
uh, this joy and awe in this transcendent God that the creed begins with, that when nothing exists above us, that we are just left with our own thoughts. We're left with our own small and sad existences where nothing has meaning. And, and I really think that that is like, that's our confession, our creed comes to us and says, I believe in God in the midst of this kind of world that hates being alone, that hates the sound of our own voices. Um, our culture says, you know, that you know, we believe in love and, and yet like the great Reformed theologian from U2, Bono, says, um, it's like, I believe in love, but an Uzi just went off in my hand. I don't, I don't believe in crack, but I have a speedball in my hand. And I think that that's just like the, the pressure and the tension that everyone is feeling is that there's no longer this transcendent God above us who can give us awe or inspire us to live. And so I think the Christian confession begins with this awe and majesty of this God Almighty that it's meant to shock us. And this God who is without need that we talked about last week yet he is full of delight and joy and his desire was to create us, not because he needed us, but because he wanted us to experience the joy that he had from eternity. Um, and so that's, I think that's just backing up and, and saying the so what. Why should this matter? Why does this even, why does this matter for the 21st century? And I think that that, that is what this confession is coming out and saying right up front. Uh, that when nothing can surprise us, nothing will. Um, we don't have any joy, God is saying, without Him, without the God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Uh, so this is really the backdrop of what we're confessing when we confess this. It's, it's one of joy and, and, and awe and adulation for who God is and how He's desired to be with us. Um, so first, um, what do we mean when we say that God is our Father? Well, there's, there's a couple different things that Scripture is pointing to when it teaches us this, that we have a very personal God, that He's not some distant deity who's disinterested in us, who uh, thinks that you know, we're just kind of little creatures scurrying about the earth in His way. No, He's a personal God who's revealed His name to us, and that he has a loving father. And we see that throughout Scripture that God is described as the creator of all things, that he's the father of everyone that exists. Um, the Old Testament says that in Malachi, where he says that, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And Paul even says that as well when he's talking to these pagans in Athens where he's saying that we are all God's offspring. Um, all of humanity is created by this one God who is called our Father. And in that way, God owns everything. His ownership is seen because he's the creator of everything and because he's the father of everything. Um, and because of that, we are obligated to seek him out we're obligated to worship him and 
he, his very existence is the end for which we were created. Um, but that doesn't mean, when we think about him as father, that all men are in a saving relationship with him or that all men know him in that same way. Uh, when Paul was talking in Athens, he specifically calls them to worship the one true God and, and to repent and believe in Jesus. So we see that God is the Father in this one sense, um, but there's something else that the Scripture actually speaks about when he speaks about God as our Father. We talked a bit about last week about how it's also referring to that inner life of God, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When it says God the Father, it's, it's pointing to that, that God is in his nature. He's one God, but he is three persons. And within that Trinity, within the Trinity, is this relationship that we talk about the, between the Father and the Son. Um, the Son calls God his Father and prays to him and, and worships him and this is a unique relationship that he has that he says, I'm going to do everything that pleases the Father, that anything that he does, I'm going to mirror back to him and give all the glory and praise to my Father. And the Son, the Son of God, does everything that the Father declares for him to do. And so that, that was that relationship that we talked about last week where that's, there's one of perfect love and harmony where the Father says something and declares this amazing reality and the Son just delights in what he sees his Father do and he loves to do it. And that's what he's revealed in his, in his human life as well, that, that he came to earth to do everything that pleases the Father, where he says that not my will be done but yours and that shall I not drink of this cup that you've given to me by dying for, my, for your people. Um... So this is that, that relationship that we see in God's, in God's Word where it's speaking about not only how He's created all things, but also about that life that He's had forever with the Son and the Spirit. Um, but there's a third thing that it, it brings, to, brings to light, and it's specifically our adoption. And a unique thing that God is showing us about salvation. So God is our Father, and this is, this is pointing to something that is really unique. Uh, God isn't this force. He isn't karma. There's not this yin and yang where God is part of this world and he's this, this impersonal relationship where we have to you know, try to coerce the universe in order to get what we want from him. Uh, no, but Scripture constantly is revealing, as we've seen, that he's this personal, intimate, caring God who's, who's good in all his ways. And the commands that he gives us, all the things that we see in Scripture, should never be read outside of that context. They should never be read outside the context of his parenting. Um... If you think of like your own parents, like when, when they saw us doing something that we knew was bad for us, uh, obviously we wanted, some to do, we wanted to do whatever it was that we wanted to do, but they're saying these things like, don't run on the street, 
because they know that that's meant for our, our good. Even though we want to go chase that ball or whatever it was, they knew that that could lead to our, our harm and our destruction. Um, so God as our Father is, is someone who actually is saying, I know what you need to be happy. I know what you need for that joy and for true human flourishing. And God had to become this father to us in this, in this third way through adoption because we decided to run after that ball anyways. You know, so he, we wanted to have our happiness and our joy apart from him. And so God had to send his son, the eternal son of God, to bring us back into his family. Um, so that's the, that's the third thing that we see about God as our father is that it's speaking of our, the believer's adoption into God's family. And this is a, a supernatural gift. This is a, a, a gift of God's grace that it very much is linked to what we talked about in the last quarter with justification. So if you remember the, the analogy that we gave uh, several weeks ago about the flower being in the sun's presence, that the flower, when it's cut off from that presence, is going to wilt and, and die. And something had to happen in order to restore that relationship. And that's what we said that justification was. That, that is the legal thing that allows us to now be in God's presence again and be adopted and brought into his family. Um, John 1 describes it, said that all those who received him, those who received Jesus, who believe in his name, he gives the power to become the children of God. And that causes us to be born again from this father. That Jesus coming to earth as the perfect son of God is now restoring that relationship and bringing us back to the Father. He says that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And then even to the disciples, as we we heard several weeks ago, um, that he says that he calls the disciples, anyone who believes in him, my brothers. All of those who believe in, in this God and Father Almighty and who believe in Jesus are now Christ's brothers. Uh, and that's, the, that's very much the second way that now God owns us. He's not only the creator of us as our Father, but now he, he sends His Son to bring us back into that relationship and He owns us doubly. He owns us twice because of how much He's filled with that joy and delight for his creation. And this is just like another way of showing God, showing us how intimate he is. Like this isn't just a theoretical head knowledge that we're just, you know, okay, yeah, God's our father. Not, I'm not just going to go about my business. No, he, he's saying, I'm your father. You can wake me up in the middle of the night and not fear wrath. You can come and, and pull on me and wake me up just as you did to your dad and your mom in the middle of the night when you're scared of the thunderstorm outside or whatever it is, anything in life, he's saying, you can come to me 
I am a good God and Father. I'm not this nebulous spirit and impersonal force. He's like, no, I'm, I'm a good Father who delights in you and I've done all these things. I've adopted you and brought you back into that family so you can wake me up and I can hear from you whenever you need. And so this is all some of the very first things that we should think about and understand when we confess this part of the creed. Um, This is what it means to have God as our Father. That through Christ, the Father now loves us no less than He loves His own Son. His only begotten Son who He's had from eternity. He loves us just like that. That's a marvelous confession that we can make. That this most transcendent almighty God is absolutely intimate and personal. That He is our family. And we can call Him out, Abba, Father, whenever anything happens in our lives that we're distressed about. So, God is our Father. Um, now, how is, he, how is He also sovereign? Uh, this is one of the terms that, the, that it uses, Almighty, that He is full of might, and, and He is absolutely powerful or omnipotent and sovereign. Um, first, I think it has to be read in that context of what it means for God to be our Father. That we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Uh, Paul, Paul talks about it in Romans 8 when he says that believers are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. So I think one of the things that it's is pointing out is that you know we are going to suffer in this life but because we know that God is, is great and good that whatever evil He sends to us that He will turn it to our good. And that's why I think we, we have to understand that when it says that He's our Father, it's, He's pointing out His goodness. It's pointing out, first of all, that He's not this arbitrary person who's exacting punishment upon people. But He is, first, our good Father and He's faithful. So He will turn whatever we're going through in this life for our good. Whatever evils that are sent upon us in this life, He will turn for our good. Um, so that's part of what it's saying when God is sovereign. <clears throat> but it's basically pointing out this picture of as God is as, as King. Um, this basic Bible fact is that God is the Lord and He is the King of the universe and He reigns over the whole world. And this, this should also be something that brings us great comfort. Um, it's supposed to cause us to praise God because we know that since He is almighty, He's going to accomplish everything that He, is, he has set out to do. Um, now this, this doctrine of God's sovereignty is something that I know can a lot of people caught up on, on the, all the wrong things. And that's why I'm trying to like emphasize in this way is that it's, it's not supposed to be this thing that we're going to get caught up in because um, God is sovereign and that means that we aren't. But it's really a matter of worship. It's really a matter of us, like I said, coming to God at, at midnight with our requests, knowing that He's going to be able to turn 
all the things that we're going through for our good, that he is this good king on a throne who does all that he pleases, which is exactly why he can save us. And I think that that's like, that is the big thing when we think about God's sovereignty is that it, it would not be any help to us if God is just good. It wouldn't do us any good if God is good, if he were also not great, if God were not also sovereign and almighty, if he was just like sitting out there watching us as we're, the house is on fire and he couldn't do anything to get us out of the house, that wouldn't really help us, would it? I mean, like, what, what good would that do if he couldn't come in with that axe and break down the door and take us out of that fire? It would mean nothing. And so when we think about God as his sovereignty, um, that, that is like the first thing we need to think about. Um, but I think there's a couple other things that we should think about in terms of what God cannot do. Uh, now that might sound kind of bizarre when we just said that he's sovereign and he can do all things. But when we think about it, does God's omnipotence really mean that he can just do literally anything? And no, I, I would want to say no. It doesn't mean that. It, that's not the meaning. Um, there are many things that God cannot do. He can't do what is just self-contradictory and, and nonsensical. So like you have all these people who out there like, well, can God turn a circle into a square or build a rock that he can't lift? And, and that's really just like to get beside the point. That's really missing the whole big picture because God, his omnipotence doesn't mean um, that he can do things that are just completely contradictory and illogical. Like, it's impossible that a square it can be a circle. And... God can do the intrinsically possible, not the intrinsically impossible. Um, so all those, those things, can God do X? I think they're all just kind of word games that people try to get us caught up in that actually are illogical and unreasonable. Um, but I think more importantly, what God cannot do is that he cannot act outside of his character. And I think that's like the more important aspect of this, is like he cannot be capricious. He cannot be unloving. He cannot be random or unjust or inconsistent. I think that's the most important thing that we have to realize is that God cannot not be who he is. God cannot act in a way that denies his good, loving nature, but also his just nature. He can't just pardon sin without that atonement that we talked about two weeks ago. Um... But he also, because he did provide that, he cannot fail to be faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess them to God. Or in keeping any of his promises, God cannot not keep his promises. He, he must do that. Um, God's omnipotence or his almighty strength would actually be weakness if he could if he could fail in keeping his promises, he wouldn't be God. So, a positive way of saying that is that whatever God intends to do, he does. I think that's like the simple way of saying it. Whatever God intends to do, he does. 
Uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 135, says, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. And when He created the world in Genesis 1, He says, when He spoke, He came to be. You know, we're not like that. I can intend to do all kinds of things, have good intentions, but they don't actually get executed. They don't actually come through. And even if we have the best intentions, evil can come about. But God is totally different. He, he cannot act in a way that denies himself. And whatever he intends to do, he does. Um, so that's like the first thing I think about when we think about God's sovereignty. And I think the second thing is, is, is when we think about that, questions about human freedom and the free will often kind of come up. People are like, what? well, if God is sovereign, then does that mean I can't choose my socks in the morning? Can I, do I not tie my shoes a second ago? Um, and I think people think that that instantly just unravels the Bible's claim that God is a sovereign, almighty creator. But I really think that that misunderstands everything that, that the Scriptures are actually painting. Um, God's power to fulfill His promises is not limited by man's freedom, a free choice. Um, yes, we do have the capacity to choose things. As humans, we have freedom according to our, our human nature. Anything that's within our capacity, as humans, we really do choose. Um, but God's power is not limited by our creaturely power. So, it's not like, there's, as one of our professors likes to say, there's not these two pies where, you know, God has 99% of the freedom pie and we have 1%. And that's what makes Him sovereign. Or, nor is it like God's acting and then He, oh, here we are, and He bumps into us. You know, when God is doing things as the Creator who's infinite, He's doing it in an infinite way that totally surrounds us, that's above us, and doesn't even, does never even bump into us. So our freedom, in many ways, is, is found within God. That what we're doing as creatures never bumps into Him. He, he, his actions are so above us that he actually can work through human decisions, even when decisions are, are done against him. Um, that God orders everything to come to pass, and, and it comes to pass. But we also act freely according to our nature. And I think that that, that kind of tension can be resolved when we understand that our freedom is creaturely freedom and His freedom is divine, infinite freedom. God is working His will through this world, even functioning through how we psychologically think and, and do things and choose things. Um, that we aren't going to be bumping into God's decision because we're making a certain choice. Uh, nothing is going to stop or hinder God from working all things according to the counsel of His will. 
as Paul says in Ephesians 1. And at the same time, there's nothing that he's doing that's violating my creatureliness. Um, he's not violating us in the sense that we're robots. Um, does that make sense? Does that help? I think that, I think that a lot of people can get caught up on these things because we're thinking of it as if God has 99% of the pie and we have 1%. And therefore, there's this tension that doesn't have to exist. Um, but God created our humanness. He created us for who we are and He created all things. And He sustains them and He, cre- and he in some sense, brings everything to His purpose without overriding us. Um, I think there's a lot of mystery there too as well that we just kind of have to like recognize that God is going to do things behind the scenes that we're just incapable of understanding. Um, but we are making these decisions and we are really responsible for them. Um, and I think the third thing that, that a lot of people bring up when we think about God's sovereignty is the problem of evil. Um, I don't know how many conversations you've had with non-Christians or even Christians and this problem comes up. I know I have. Right. But the problem of evil makes it seem like everything that we've said isn't true. That God is this personal, loving, intimate Father who's also sovereign. It seems to unravel that in our minds. Um, but, but I think that part of God being loving and creating the world as He did, if He was truly wanting us to choose to love God and, to, and choose Him in freedom, the freedom that He's given us, part of that love is the p- capacity to not love Him. To have that choice that Adam and Eve had. To say, no, I'm not going to choose this direction. Um, God wasn't coercing Adam and Eve to love Him. And they, they chose the very opposite. Which is why evil came into this world. Um, the fact that that re- that their evil really is, I think, is actually the, one of the best arguments for the existence of God. Um, that that God created the world perfect and beautiful with this freedom and this love, and the world has actually descended. The things have gone badly and are not working like that. Means that it wasn't meant to be that way. It means that we were made for something else. If evil is actually wrong, and there are things that are happening to people all the time that are unjust, that's because there's a standard of goodness that was first. There has to be a good reality behind it in order for something to actually be evil. Um, does that make sense? Like, So God has to offer this real freedom and this choice, even though he's sovereign, and he has the capacity, we had to give the choice that evil would enter this world in order for us to truly love him, in order for love to be something that we are freely giving back to God. And I, I think all the other worldviews that are out there, pretty much evil isn't even, even a reality. All the other worldviews think evil is an illusion. Um, if, if you kind of believe in karma or the yin and the yang, Evil isn't really bad. It's just how the world fixes itself. And, and it's part of the greater whole and the greater picture. So if someone 
is poor in the slums of India, well, that's because they did something in the past of their life and that evil's happening to them for, because it's retribution. And the good that's happening to me is just how the universe is fixing itself and in some sense coming. So evil is just an illusion that you're trying to transcend. Um, if d- evolution is true, there's evil is just what we kind of think about and project onto the world because everything's about survival of the fittest. There is no right or bad. There's no good or evil. Everything is just the, the will to power to get to where we're supposed to be. Um, so in my mind, the, the problem of evil doesn't in any way subtract from God being almighty and him being a good father, but it actually shows the exact opposite. And that through Christ, evil people and bad folk like us are actually being made good again. And he's restoring, and he's, he didn't leave the world like this, but he's going to come in, and he comes into our world, and he's reordering the whole universe, and he's bringing about the destruction of evil itself so that it won't ever have to exist again. Um, and that Paul assures us that even though we constantly feel those evils around us today, that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that he's going to be revealed to us. Um, you know, God does move maybe sometimes more slowly than we hope, clearing evil out of the world and introducing that new order. But because we know all this about God, we can be sure that he's, he's widening and, and including as many victims of evil as possible in his plan of salvation. He's bringing them all in. And he, he's allowing us to go through these things, but with the knowledge that he's going to turn all of that for our good. And it's not even worth comparing to the glory that's about to come. Um, And I think that's really the good news of understanding God as our Father and as Sovereign, is that God must be both good and great. Um, That his almightiness in creation or providence isn't this thing that should get us caught up on all these different problems that, we kind of hear, but it just should let us rest. Um, it should let us rest in the fact that we're not God, we're not in control, that we can have our trust and our peace and our joy in God, and that we can run to Him and He will hear our prayers and He will protect us and ultimately bring us to that final salvation. And it, and it means that, you know, like, that fate isn't in control of us, the stars aren't in control of us, blind chance, nor our own folly. Um, Not even Satan, the most powerful angelic being that God created, can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Satan's malice does not control the world. Instead, this morally perfect God runs everything and no one can dethrone him or thwart his purpose. So at the end of the day, you know, it's rehearsing all these things that it allows us just to take a break. Um, Like I was saying at the beginning of the class, um, so many people are, have, have so little to live for 
so little purpose and meaning and they're just going on coasting through life trying to numb their pain and their boredom and no wonder why we're so anxious and so filled with the spirit because we're trying to be God like that's ultimately what's happening is that we're a culture of people who are trying to be God and so we can't rest we have to buy 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 we have to consume 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 and we have to do all these things because God is not on the throne at least in our in our hearts um but that's what the Christian confession just comes out and says so dramatically is that we are not God and we can just take a, take a chill pill. I have to remind myself all the time that I can just rest. We can rest in Him. Um, we can be patient in adversity. We can be thankful in prosperity because we can have confidence that God in God's future for us this eternal glory is waiting us because He is our Almighty Father. Um, we, can, we can live knowing that nothing will separate us from His love. Nothing in this world, all creatures, are so, are so in His hand that we cannot so much move our finger without His will um, because He is this good, sovereign God He's working all these things for our good purpose and end. Um, before I move on, any, any questions or thoughts about God's sovereignty? Um, I know that's a lot to kind of chew on, but I know a lot of people do get caught up on human free will, the problem of evil, and how God is sovereign. It all made sense? All kosher? <laughs> oh, good. Um, yeah, so in our remaining time, we'll, we'll look at real quickly what it means that God is our creator. Um, I heard this, I read this one joke as I was doing my research for it. I'm just going to read it real briefly, but I thought it really made a good point. So a group of scientists challenged God to this contest over who could design and build a better human being. You know, so God happily accepts this challenge and he meets the scientists at the laboratory or in the field where they're, where they're doing this contest. And so God just takes this lump of clay and he begins to build Adam 3.0. But then he noticed and looks over and the scientists are doing the exact same thing with some of his clay. And so God promptly walks over and he, and he says to the scientists, he says, excuse me, chaps, but this is my clay. I made it for myself. You go and make your own clay. <laughs> And so the contest was over. Um, and it's just a silly little story, but it, like the human beings, you know, we're clever and do at doing extraordinary things. We really are, make, you know, mapping DNA sequences, uncovering these dark mysteries of of dark matter, and theorizing quantum mechanics, and maybe creating AI, artificial intelligence. Um, but the point is, like, whenever it comes to making something out of nothing. Like, we're, we're nowhere in God's league and we fail miserably at trying to be God. Um, and that's kind of like, when we think of God as our creator, as, as the creator of all things, we already kind of looked at 
uh, the Genesis account, so I'm not going to go through it right now, uh, but we already discussed how different it was compared to all the ancient ancient myths about creation. Um, I don't know if any of you can reach back in your mind to September when we were talking about those, but do any of you remember some of the big differences that we talked about in terms of like the ancient myths and how it viewed God and the gods of the creating everything? If not, it's okay. But Yeah, sometimes it's a mistake. Um, and if you remember that great battle scene that, that the ancient pagans thought created the world, like that violence was ultimately at the center of creation. Um, that you had these two equal deities kind of duking it out and battling it out. Um, but the creation story, as we showed, shows something very different. Uh, what it's showing is all the things that we were just talking about. This amazingly astute artist and creator of all things who's almighty and he's taking care of all the things that he's created and he's developing it. And he's this amazing, beautiful artist who's doing this wonderful tapestry and bringing us into this world. And so it's a very different kind of picture than what we even hear about today. Um, when we think about nature, what are, what are some of the things that come to your mind? Just anything at all. Like when we think of the term nature... What do we think about? Yeah. Outdoorsy kind of stuff. Um, Beauty. Animals. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so as as modern people, when we think about nature, we we oftentimes, like if if you think of those scientists in that joke, um, they often... can we often take things, take matter, take nature in the world, and we can kind of do all these things with it. We can create all of these amazing, wonderful things from all the, thing, all the things that we see around us. Um, and sometimes that understanding of nature doesn't really get at the understanding of creation. Um, when you think of the word creation, what, what is that? What does that seem like it implies in, a, in opposition to the word nature? A creator. Yeah, so it has this idea that there's a creator behind it. Um, if we started thinking of things in terms of creation, um, it points to the fact that, that God created things a certain way for a certain end. That God created things to act a certain way and to exist and live a certain way, um, that when we think of a tree, when we think of a seed being planted, that it has a certain goal. What's it, what, what is it going to become? It's going to become this tree. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bear fruit, and that is its purpose in this world. And when we think of um, a cow, we, we think of something that's going to produce milk for us. That's going to produce this, it could, produ- could produce meat for us. And all these different things that God put it on this earth for. Um, and I think like going back to what we were saying earlier, part of the present tension that we kind of constantly live in is that we just kind of think of things 
outside of their purpose, outside of what they're made for. And part of the sorrow that we even experience in our own hearts is that we aren't really sure what we were created for and what we were created to do and to be. And God, when he's painting this big picture of creation and putting us in the garden, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, he is, he's showing us what we were created for and, and, the, and what it means to be human. And like that good father who says, don't run out into the street because you're going to get hit by the car. God is saying, this is what you were made for, for actually what you need to just to live and not get hit. This is what true happiness and true human flourishing looks like. Um, and so God is our creator. All of these things, as, as we've seen, all of these things are pointing to what it means to be truly human in this world. What it means to have true comfort. It's, it's not arbitrary. It's, God is not this arbitrary creator or, or a force in the universe, but he's the maker of heaven and earth because he is our father and he's almighty. Um, man, I'm running out of time. So God created this whole world and the Genesis account, the creation account, is painting, painted this big picture for us of God being the artist. God being the great masterpiece, that this composer who's making this great symphony. And everything had its part. Everything had its place. And we are not God. I think that's like one of the big things, like I was saying earlier, that is important to focus on is that, that the creator, rather than the creation, is, is the one who's teaching us. The creator, rather than the creation, is the one who's telling us what that ultimate purpose and goal of this whole world is. Um... I think running out of time for the moment, but we'll kind of fin- we'll pick up more about this next week. Uh, any questions or thoughts on what we've talked about so far? All right. Well, let's end in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we we thank you for another week and studying the Apostles' Creed and understanding truly what it means to be adopted as children and being able to call upon you as our good Father, that we can really bring any prayer requests that we have or thoughts to you. And we don't have to worry about you being arbitrary, but we know that you are good and you are a merciful God. And you've created all these things uh, to bring us to yourself, to have that delight and joy in you. So we ask, Lord, as we uh, enter into worship that you would prepare our hearts and that you would uh, show Christ to us again. In your Son's name we ask. Amen.